welcome to you who made it this morning. We are going to continue on in our journey through the gospel chronologically as we move into the next section of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, if you were with us last week, was talking about kind of the internal things that go on inside of us and the struggles that we have with specific sins that are major sins in the world. But this week he's going to talk more about the outward activities of our daily life rather than the inner attitudes and thoughts. And he speaks about activities that we should all be a part of as believers in Jesus. I want to ask a question before we get to that. Why do we do good things? Why do you do good things? Why do you do positive actions for the world around you? Why do you do virtuous acts if you do them? Is it out of gratitude to Jesus? Is it just because that's the right thing to do? Or that's the way that you were raised? Is it to earn a heavenly reward? Like you're just stacking crowns. Be like, man, when I get to heaven, my crown stack is going to be pretty sweet. Or is it for attention from other people? Maybe all of us would answer that question a little bit differently depending on a lot of different factors in your life. But Jesus in this section is going to speak extremely strongly against a certain group of people whom he says are only doing these things to be noticed by other people. These religious leaders that he calls hypocrites in this section. Now this word hypocrite gets used in the scripture a lot. And it is one of the... It's one of the words you don't want to be called by Jesus. Let's put it that way. The Greek word is hupokritos. It literally means a stage actor or a mask wearer. And the idea here was back then they didn't have TV and stuff. And so... All, all the entertainment was on stage. And so if you were in the back of a room, a big room, you probably couldn't see the nuances on people's faces. Are they sad? Are they happy? And so they'd wear these kind of masks, which, by the way, since I was a child, have freaked me out. I don't like them. Uh, but they would wear these masks, and you can see on those masks, like, these over-exaggerated, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm mad, whatever it is. And so it's putting on a mask to pretend that you are something that you're not. That's the whole background of what it means to be a hypocrite or hypocritos. And this word gets used because Jesus is calling people to be genuine, not to be an actor. I don't know if you've ever done anything in your life just to look spiritual, or maybe I'm the only one. Am I the only one? Okay. I think I've told this story before, but it's it's a true story. I'm not. It makes me look bad. But when I was dating my wife, we were at Bible college together because that's how you find a wife. And and I remember when we first started dating, one of the first times that I ever stood next to her in the chapel service, I I put my hands way up. I don't know. I, I think I have a pic. Yeah, like I put them way up. Like. Normally, I may have been one of these, you know, carry the TV guys, but, but, but when I was, like, trying to look spiritual for this pretty young thing, 
Ah, man, I was like, I was praising the Lord. I was being a hupokritos because it wasn't genuine. It was me trying to impress a young lady who I knew loved Jesus, and I loved Jesus too, but I normally just wasn't like the, like, raise the roof kind of Christian. And so I, I, I was being a hupokritos. Has any, anybody, anybody ever? Okay, good. I'm not completely alone. And Jesus speaks about this idea of being a hypocrite. And in this section that we're going to cover today, he talks about three specific things that are a part of the life of a follower of Jesus and how some people are being hypocritical. And he speaks about giving, praying, and fasting. Let's start in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. If you have a Bible or device, open up. It'll also be on the screen. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Giving to the needy, giving to the church was a sacred thing in their culture. It was expected that you would care for those who were in need, and that if you had resources, you would give to those who did not. And Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. Because there's this danger that if you are doing it before other people, that you're going to start making it not about those who are in need, but about you. And then there's this line that I, I never understood exactly fully what this meant until I studied this this week, and it's fascinating. He says, sound no trumpet before you, I learned this week there's a double meaning to this because in the temple there were these offering vessels that looked like trumpets. You can see that. And they were meant to be a place where you'd go and you'd give to the needy, you'd give to the church, and you would quietly place your offering in there. But what would sometimes happen is people would come in and as they'd be putting money into the trumpet, they would kind of clang it down in there, make sure that people could hear how many coins were going into the trumpet, make sure people understood like, oh, did you hear how much money that person put into the trumpet? But eventually the Pharisees decided that they wanted an even more public idea for their giving, and so they'd go out to the street corners and they would make a big show. Some Bible scholars even think they would literally bring a small trumpet, like a handheld trumpet, and they would blow it to let all the poor people know, here I am, I'm giving you alms to the poor. So there's this double meaning of the trumpet there, but also possibly the trumpet that they would literally blow to get attention from other people about what they were doing. Their gifts were turned into these public displays that were not humble, they were not in quiet, they were to get attention for how 
great they were for caring for others. And Jesus says plainly that those who are doing this for public recognition or accolades or pats on the back are hypocrites. And that the only reward that they have for their actions is the attention that they're gaining for other people. His point is that if they receive their reward from people in the world, they are not going to receive a reward from God because they didn't do it for God. They did it for others, and that's their reward. But before we go into the next section, I want you to notice something that becomes a theme in this whole section. He starts out by saying, when you give, not if you give. His normal expectation of people that follow him is that they have aligned themselves under his lordship and that they will people they will be people who give generously to those who are in need. It is just a, an expectation of followers of Jesus that they will be generous people. Let's go to the next section. One of the most famous things in all of the Bible, if you were raised in a Catholic tradition like I was, you can rattle off this prayer in about three seconds because you've said it a billion times, but I want to take a second to slow down and actually take a look at it, because it is the words of Jesus telling us how to pray. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you can ask them. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then here's an interesting thing. If you have an old King James version, New King James, then it'll also say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory now and forever. Amen. If you have a different translation, it doesn't say that. The only reason for that is the earliest manuscripts of the Bible didn't have that part in it. We think that the church added it later just as kind of a, say, a way of saying, this is our prayer. Like they, were, they were saying, this is who we are. And so if you don't have that one, then verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Okay, lots there. Let's take it slow. Don't pray to be seen by others. Again, people, the Pharisees would be making these big displays. They would get up and they would pray, Oh, Holy Father in heaven, oh, right? They do this whole thing. It's flowery. It's eloquent. They want to be seen as spiritual. 
They want to be seen as righteous. But Jesus says it's hypocritical because they're doing it for the attention of others. They don't actually love to pray. They love to be noticed. They love the attention. They stand in the synagogue or on a crowded street and they make sure that they're noticed and they try to pray long, flowery prayers. They want to sound spiritual and wise. They want to be viewed as more holy than others and so they put it all on display. And Jesus says, instead of doing that, pray in the quietness. Go to your room. Close the door. And just spend time with the Lord. Be present with God. This is why we as believers need quiet time. We need time to just go be with God. And we don't have to pray in front of people. Right, a lot of people, that's terrifying anyways, right? But if you're just praying between you and God, you just have a conversation with God. If you've ever wondered, like, how do I pray? Literally just talk to God. Like, just have a conversation as if he was sitting there right with you, because he is in a different kind of way. Just talk to the Lord. Interesting, too, there's a cross-reference for this. The Lord's Prayer, as we call it, is also in Luke chapter 11. And it's really interesting because right before the Lord's Prayer, the disciples say to Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray. That's an amazing thing if you think about that. They say, Lord, teach us pray. Not, Lord, teach us how to cast out demons. Or, Lord, teach us how to build your kingdom. Or, Lord, teach us how to be really powerful preachers. They don't say any of those things. They say, Lord, teach us how to pray. What a humble request that is. I hope that we would do that. Lord, would you you just teach me how to pray? And so he does, and he gives them this Lord's Prayer. And in a way, it's, it's a template, right? You can pray this prayer literally word for word. It's a beautiful prayer. It's the words of Jesus. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's also, I think, a template for us. If you break it down a little bit, it's very simple. It's not a big, flowery, eloquent prayer. The whole thing is about 60 words. It takes maybe 30 seconds to pray. You would think that when people say to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray, that he would give them a dissertation on the ancient meanings of prayer and all these things. But he says, no, how about you just pray like this? And he gives them a 30-second prayer. And the prayer starts by giving God glory and recognizing who he is. I want you to see this as the template. The prayer starts talking about God. The prayer does not start talking about me. It is recognizing who God is, that he is our Father in heaven. And this is incredible. Just think about that first line for a second. In the world that they live in, the gods, lowercase g, were these overlords who just hated people and used them as pawns and they they required ritual sacrifice and people would murder children to them, like all sorts of things. And yet, when Jesus teaches them how to pray, the first thing he says is, our Father. And that word Father in the Greek language is Abba. It's Daddy. It's not even like a distant, like, Father. No, it's Daddy. Our, our Dad, who's in heaven. 
And so it's this weird thing where it's intimate, but also who's in heaven. And so it's respectful, but it's intimate and close. And from the very beginning, he introduces himself as, as Papa. He says, pray to your Papa. In the Old Testament, they always spoke of God in these big titles like Elohim, El Shaddai, Yahweh, all these big terms that meant amazing things. And those are beautiful things. But when Jesus teaches us how to pray, he says, call him Daddy. Did God change? No, he's still Elohim. He is still El Shaddai. He is still Yahweh. But our relationship with him has changed. We have become the adopted children of God. And he is our father. I cannot overstate how amazing this first line of this prayer is. That God invites the God of the universe, who created everything, says, I'll be your papa. That's incredible. It says, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed means to make holy. Right? It's what it sounds like, hallowed. You make it holy. And so, yes, he is our papa, but he is also completely and totally holy. He is set apart. There is no sin in him. Even though we are close and connected, we are still to bring great honor to his holiness. Biblically, listen. Biblically, Somebody's name represented who they are. It wasn't just a title. It was their essence. It represented who they were. And so Jesus is telling us the name of God is holy. He is, God is so holy that even his name is holy. A lot of people in the Old Testament wouldn't even pronounce the names of God out of respect for it. And so if you ever see YHWH, they take the vowels out because somehow they think that is showing more honor to his name. They won't even say Yahweh. The name of God is holy. That's why, this is just a side note, this is, this is me on my little stool for a second, my little soapbox. The whole idea of taking the Lord's name in vain I don't think that that's just cussing. I don't think that that's just putting Jesus with another word that's a bad word or God with another word. I don't think that's what it is. I think anytime we use God's name in a way that is not specifically glorifying to him, that is taking the Lord's name in vain. Even if you just say like, oh God, and you're not praying to him, or if you just say, oh God, God, like those things are taking the Lord's name in vain. I am not, most of you that know me, I'm not like the, the language police. Like personally, I don't really care about swear words. It's, it's like whatever, like don't do it because it upsets people. But like I don't actually think that those are that big deal because somebody just decided one day that that word's a bad word. Okay, but the Lord's name in vain is a commandment from God. And so, like, let's keep the name of God holy. Like, don't use God's name unless you are speaking to or speaking about or bringing honor to God. I think that's a big thing, even in the church, that we just kind of have forgotten. 
that God's name represents God and brings holy, holiness to him. And so if we just throw that around like it's meaningless, that is literally uh, making what is holy generic. So, off my soapbox. Okay. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is speaking of God's purpose. Your kingdom come. It's a prayer for the future kingdom of God that will reign on the earth, but also the rule of God that's happening in our lives now. It's also a really interesting prayer for Jesus to teach his disciples because he says, your kingdom come, and yet he's right there with them. The kingdom has, in many ways, come. The kingdom of God is right there. And so he's saying, your kingdom come. Continue to have your kingdom coming, God. Continue to have your way in this world. And it is being done as they speak. And notice, it's your kingdom, not my kingdom. God, do what you're doing in this world. We do not sit on the throne of our own lives. We, don't, we do not live for thy, or we live for my. We live for his kingdom. So it says, your kingdom come. Right? We're still in this section where we're just talking about how great God is. We're starting out this prayer template by saying, this is who you are, Father. Your kingdom come. And when we don't do this, things go wrong. I don't know if you've seen this in your life, but when you start living for my kingdom rather than thy kingdom, things go horribly astray. There's a story in the Old Testament that's a perfect example of this. There's a man named Hezekiah, and the Lord told Hezekiah it was time for him to die. And Hezekiah kind of starts whining. I don't want to die. I understand that. But he's begging God, begging God, begging God. And finally God says, fine, I will let you live. And Hezekiah lives for 15 more years, and they are the worst years of his life. He was a king, and during those 15 years, he brought on the Babylonian invasion to Israel. And then one of the biggest things is during those 15 years, he fathered another son named Manasseh, who becomes the worst king in Israel's history. Because he wanted his kingdom, not God's kingdom. Verse 11 is where we switch, right? Up until this point, we're praying just glory to God, and then we come to this part where we come to God in request, right? We've given him glory. Now we come to him and we make our requests. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. This is our daily understanding that we need God for our daily needs, not our daily greeds, Our daily needs, the things that we need. He knows what we need better than we know ourselves. And he knows that our greatest need in life is him. But he also knows we need food, we need shelter, we need clothes. He talks about this and we'll get more into this later in Matthew. But it's not just a reference to food, but all of the physical and spiritual needs that we have. Needs that we should give God glory for 
giving to us. He's the giver of all good gifts. And so we just pray, God, would you give us everything we need to just live today? I want you to notice, this is maybe another soapbox thing. I'm going to stay on my chair, though. It does not say anything close to this whole idea of name it and claim it theology that's going on in the world. It doesn't say, God, give me what I want. I claim a nicer car. I claim a bigger house. I claim a bigger paycheck. I claim bonuses. And we laugh at that. I have been to churches where those prayers are spoken. God, we claim as if we have the right to just tell God, this is what you're going to give me. As if God is the ATM machine in the sky. This is a theology that is going around in our world, and it is false. What even makes me laugh about it is a lot of times people that speak that theology will, will go to Hebrews 11 to prove what they think because it says some things that they like. But then if you go down to the second part of that same chapter, it says, but some people just died. It's like, oh, okay, so not everyone gets everything they want, right? Like it's not a name and claim. It's God, would you give us what we need, the things that sustain us? And then he goes on and says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus links the vertical forgiveness from him to us with the horizontal forgiveness from us to others. He links this idea that we are forgiven to the idea that we should forgive. And that is a tough one for us to swallow sometimes, isn't it? We need to understand how greatly we have been forgiven. I think that's the problem when we have a feeling of unforgiveness is we forget what we've been forgiven for. Maybe you've been walking with the Lord for decades now, and you know you still struggle with sin, but you forget how broken you may have been and how much the forgiveness of God has changed you from the inside out. This is one of the main things that separates the Christian faith from every other system in the world. It is the forgiveness of sin and the way that that affects us. Ephesians 4.32 says, Forgive one another just as God has forgiven you. And this theme of forgiveness in the gospel was never meant to be limited to us as receiving forgiveness from God. It was always meant to be passed on through us to other people who need forgiveness from us. It was not just an action of Jesus. It was a model to his followers. Did you hear that? I'm going to say that again because that will preach a whole message. Forgiveness was not just an action that Jesus did for us. It was a model to pass through us to others. And I want you to understand, I am preaching to myself. This is not an easy one. I don't want to sound like it is. But it is the model that God gave us. And we're going to come back to that again in a couple verses. Verse 13 says, Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This one's interesting. Because 
if you read that like I do, you're like, why would God lead me into temptation? Well, we know that God doesn't actually lead us into evil. It tells us that in James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So the word temptation can also mean tested. And I think that's a better translation here. God, don't lead me into a testing that I'm going to fail in. God, I need your strength to endure even the tests that I go through my faith. Because we live in a world that is broken and is constantly a test. I've said this a lot of times. People say like, oh, do you need Jesus? I'm like, dude, I need Jesus to go to Walmart. Like, not just to get into heaven. Like, this world is a rough place. So I need him. So... It would seem that the meaning here would be more that we're called to pray that God would not lead us into attempting that we might fall in. Like the illustration of Abraham, he is tempted by God, but he passes that temptation. God gives him the strength to. And so we're not tempted into evil, but we do go through times of testing, and we pray, God, would you keep me from those times of testing that I might fall in? Don't allow us to be tested above what we are able to resist. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's an amazing verse. The second part of the statement, but deliver us from evil, is a reminder that we do live in the midst of spiritual warfare. That we live in a world where there is an enemy who is seeking to kill, steal, and destroy every day. And we need to remain aware of that. So we pray to God daily, God, would you keep me from that testing? God, would you protect me from evil? Would you protect me from the attacks of that world? Then after that, we find the sentence that is in some Bibles, King James versions, the, the older versions, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. It's a part of what we normally say when we say the Lord's Prayer. And it, it's, it's not, it doesn't contradict anything in the Scripture. It just wasn't in the earliest texts. It was probably added, like I said, for them to just kind of say amen to everything that the rest of the prayer said. Verses 14 and 15 are probably theologically the most dense in this entire section. So I'm going to take a second for that. Because when you first read it, you're like, uh-oh, if you're anything like me. Verse 14 and 15. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So if you read that like I do at first blush, it sounds like if I don't forgive everyone who's ever wronged me, I'm going to hell. Is that what that says? Everyone? 
Nobody wants to take it. Okay. That's a yes? Or we'll see. Let's try to break it down. This little couple of verses, like I said, is theologically the most challenging in this section. Some have read it and said, like I said, that they just think it's, it's dooming us. Like, there's no way. Like, we're always going to struggle with forgiveness. We're people, and so are we all doomed? But we know that that can't be exactly what this is saying, because if that was what it's saying, then it's saying that the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross was not sufficient to save us. That there is something in our lives, in our sin, that can actually hinder us from being saved, even if we have repented and turned away and turned to God. So what do we do with these verses? I think the answer resides, as it often does, in the context of what Jesus is talking about here. Everything that Jesus has said in this sermon has been relational. Dealing with relationships among people and amongst God and his people. This forgiveness that we're speaking about here, I believe is a relational forgiveness, not a matter of your legal standing before God. When you repent from your sins and turn to Jesus and follow him, you are then made legally justified. As if you were in a courtroom, you would be found not guilty of your sins God pays the punishment, and we get to be with God in eternity, right? Like if you, and this is a poor illustration, but if you had a legal battle with somebody that you cared about, and you go to court, and at some point you say, you know what, I'm dropping all the charges. They are then justified, they are declared legally innocent, but that doesn't mean that the relationship between the two of you has no hindrance. You have to figure that out. Hey, can you stop doing that? (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) As followers of Jesus who have put our faith in him, we are legally forgiven for the sin that separates us from God. But there are times when something hinders our connection to God relationally. When there is something between us that we need to figure out how to get past. It's obviously not on his side. He's perfect. And so there's something going on. And I think when we harbor unforgiveness for others, that means there is a a wall that is built between us and that other person, and it puts a hindrance in our relationship with God. And so It's not talking about a legal standing, but it is saying that there is something that can cause a hindrance in our connection with God. Now, I'm just scratching the surface of this. Those two verses could be their whole own sermon, Tim, but I can't, it'll take me 20 years to teach you the Gospels if I do that. Okay, it's already probably going to take two. So, the evidence, though, listen. The evidence that we have been forgiven by Jesus should be that we are then forgiving. The evidence that we understand how much we have been forgiven is that we would offer that forgiveness to others, that we would be a conduit of love and forgiveness from God to others. 
And if you tie all this back, I want to say this. This hit me like a ton of bricks as I was studying this week. This ties back to the idea of hypocrisy because is it not the ultimate sign of hypocrisy if we have been given amazing forgiveness of God for our sins and yet we think that there are things that other people can do to us that are, that are so awful, so bad that they cannot be forgiven. So this all ties back to don't be a hypocrite. Be genuine. And again, the theme I want you to notice, Jesus says, when you pray, not if you pray. Now I hope if you're a Jesus follower, you've got this one down at least, that you actually pray and like talk to God. And hopefully even, I had to learn this one, let him talk back. Because often I'll talk to God and I'm like, blah, 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 blah. And then he's like, uh, 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 could you, could you? Could you stop? I'm going to talk back now. Give him a chance to speak back to you. Thirdly, we've talked about giving. We've talked about praying. And here's another thing. Fasting. Verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast... Anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may be seen not by others but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Fasting literally means to deny yourself or to humble your soul. Most of the time when we talk about fasting, we talk about fasting from food, fast for a meal, for a time period, for a whole day. Fast like Jesus did for 40 days. I know a couple people who have done that, which is wild to me. You can also fast from other things. You could fast from technology. You could fast from entertainment, whatever. There's all kinds. Of, but normally we talk about it in terms of taking away sustenance from our lives so that we are that much more focused on prayer to the Lord. And so that if you fast for a whole day, you go the whole day, and every time you feel hungry, it becomes a reminder to pray about whatever it is that you are seeking God for in that season of your life. Some of the Pharisees, or actually all of the Pharisees in those days, would actually fast twice a week. This was not a biblical mandate. There was only one day a year that the Bible said that we were supposed to fast, and it was Yom Kippur. But the Pharisees, in another bid to gain attention, would fast every Monday and every Thursday. And some of them would actually literally paint their faces with, like, makeup to make them look worse. So that they could walk around on the streets and be like, I'm so hungry, but I'm fasting for the Lord. And people would say, oh, look how holy you are. That's exactly what they wanted. They wanted that attention. They would look sickly and gaunt, just like a stage actor wearing their mask. And the fact was, the fact that there was a time where looking really sick and sad made you look more holy is crazy to me. 
But the word of God tells us that the joy of the Lord should be our strength. It doesn't entice other people that don't know Jesus. If you walk around being like, I'm so hungry, but I'm praying to Jesus. If you weren't a believer and you saw that person, are you like, sign me up? I won't come to church with you. No. Why would anyone want to follow Jesus if everyone who follows him is just looking miserable all the time? And again, it says, when you fast, not if. This is a spiritual discipline that has been largely lost to the modern church. Very few people actually fast. Very few people take time and are willing to deny themselves something that brings them sustenance or comfort in order to say, you know what's more important than my physical body is my spiritual soul and my connection to God. I would encourage you to make this a part of your life. It doesn't have to be 24-hour fast. It could be fasting from lunch once a week just to pray for whatever it is, your friends that don't know the Lord or your family or Join me and some of the elders and, and fast once in a while just for the future of what he's doing here at Gallatin Valley Church. Like, we just, we just want to deny ourselves, humble ourselves sometimes to say, God, this is more important than my comfort. Now, if you're like type 2 diabetic, take care of yourself, okay? Don't, please don't do something stupid, but you can do that. This is a spiritual discipline that, again, when Jesus talks about it, he says, when you do this, we don't fast for attention. We don't fast for the accolades of men. It's a heart issue between us and the Father. It's saying, God, my connection to you and my, my requests to you are so important that I will deny myself. So we have these three things. I want to land this plane today. These three things that Jesus spoke about as regular parts of being a Christ follower. Giving, praying, and fasting. They were assumed parts of regular devotion. Bringing our external actions into congruence with the internal changes that have taken place in our heart because of the reality of Jesus. And all three of these things are just spiritual disciplines. They're things that help us be more like Jesus. They connect us in a deeper way to the God who created us and whose image we are made. And hopefully, that's the answer to the first question that I asked today. Why do we do good things? Why do we do actions that are positive? Why do we put our effort in there, and hopefully the answer is not to be seen by others or to be revered or to look more holy, but to more clearly reflect the image of God that we were made in. To show gratitude to the Lord for all that he has done for us and to bring him glory and honor and praise. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord, for the chance to dive into your word. It is so good. And Lord, you, you give us your word because there's so many things in this life that we just 
say, how do I, how do I do that? How do I live this life? And God, you've given us your word, and it's a, it's a light unto our feet, and we thank you for it, and we pray that you would make it known, not just to our minds, but to our hearts, and that we would fulfill these words today, that we would take these disciplines, that we would take these things that you've called us to, and and make them a part of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.